I recently saw the movie Luther when I was out in California. I don't think it's showing anywhere in Massachusetts, Rhode Island, or Connecticut for whatever reason. But uh, this was a recent Hollywood release that was pretty good. So sooner or later, it will be out on DVD, and you ought to watch it. Historically, it is very good. Theologically, it is better than most. They didn't crystallize the, just, uh, the doctrine of justification by faith alone as much as they should have, but it's there if you have your eyes open. Same thing with Sola Scriptura. However, uh, they're, they played with a few facts here and there, but overall it's pretty good. So after I saw it, it encouraged me to read some things about Luther. One of the first things Luther did after he began the Reformation, as the pastor of the church at Wittenberg, he fired the choir made the congregation the choir, called them in for choir rehearsal twice a week. Now, I wonder if we ought to do that around here. Maybe we could improve things. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, we always have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are filled with the Spirit in fellowship with the Lord and ready to take in the Word. Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ paid the penalty for every single sin when he died on the cross as our substitute. And once we trust in Christ as Savior, sin isn't the issue in our spiritual life, not in terms of our eternal condemnation. However, when we sin, Scripture says we grieve the Holy Spirit, we quench the Holy Spirit, and it breaks fellowship with God. The only way to recover fellowship is to confess, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, and he instantly forgives us. There's no need for an intermediary. Sin is a matter between the believer and God. It is not a matter of public record. So since uh, David had sinned, and he sinned egregiously both against people and against his uh, nation, Yet, nevertheless, when he confessed his sin, he said, Against thee and thee only have I sinned. See, sin is a matter between the individual and God. We break or violate his character. So all we need to do, therefore, to recover fellowship after we are saved is to simply admit or acknowledge our sins to him. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure that you are in fellowship. And then uh, I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Our Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege and opportunity to gather together this morning to worship around the teaching of your word, that it is your word that is instrumental in our spiritual growth under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. And so we take time to make the study of your word the focal point of worship. It is your word that is the highest priority in our life, that we may learn to think as you think, that we may learn about your plan, your provision, your promises to us. Father, we also thank you for the country, the nation in which we live, for our freedoms. We thank you for our president. We thank you for uh, the security that you have continued to give us, uh, our physical security that you continue to give us, and we pray that you would continue to provide for our securities no matter how strong our military might be, no matter how uh, diligent our security forces might be, we know that our security is only in your hands. So we pray that you would keep us secure. Father, we pray for us as a congregation that we would continue to keep your word at the focal point of our life, that we might be challenged by it, that we might continue to study and make it the number one focus in our own personal lives and our own application. Now, Father, as we study your word today and we continue our study on the importance of, of witnessing evangelism and missions, we pray that you would challenge us with what you have done in history. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. We are in the midst of a topical study on the importance of missions. The reason we got into this study is because of an emphasis in the third epistle of John, as John is writing to Gaius. And in verses 5 through 8, John praises Gaius because of this way he is supporting the itinerant evangelists and pastors that are coming through his area in Asia Minor. We don't know exactly where uh, Gaius lived, but John writes him and says, Beloved, that is in reference to Gaius, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers, and that is for believers he knows and for those he did not know who have borne witness of your love, that is, as these itinerant pastors and missionaries came on to Ephesus where John was, they gave a testimony about Gaius' love for the church. John goes on to say, You send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, and you are doing well. He praises him because he he took them in. He opened his home for them. He fed them. He made sure they had clothes. He went above and beyond uh, the normal course of action in terms of taking care of these uh, itinerant teachers and evangelists of the Word of God. Verse 7 we read, Because they went forth for his namesake. In other words, this relates to the motivation of a missionary. He goes forth because of God, not because of what he's going to get out of it, not because of recognition or fame from mankind are not because he will make any money in the process. And he concludes, verse 7, by saying that they took nothing from the Gentiles. In other words, the principle there is that a missionary is not to be supported by the people he goes to. He should be supported by a home congregation so that money does not become an issue in his ministry. And then John concludes in verse 8, We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers of the truth. So by participating in the support of missionaries, 
we become uh, co-workers with them in the teaching of the truth. So three weeks ago, three or four lessons ago, actually, I took the time to start developing a, uh, some thoughts on missions and the importance of missionary activity. We started off with the definition of missions, that missions technically refers to a form of cross-cultural evangelism where designated individuals are set apart by a local church to carry out the work of communicating the gospel, teaching the Word of God in the whole realm of Bible doctrine, with the end result of creating a self-supporting indigenous ministry. Now, I've gone over that definition every time for the last three or four weeks, and it'll be up on the screen in a minute. It's a form of cross-cultural evangelism. Don't reduce missions to the simple operation of witnessing or evangelism of the everyday ordinary believer engaged in the role of being an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Every believer is responsible for witnessing and evangelizing those in their periphery, making sure that your friends, your family, your co-workers, people you run into understand the real issues in life that the issue in life is not your success in education, it's not your success in business, it's not your family, it's not your hobbies, it's not your pleasures. The issue in life is preparation for eternity. Life lasts just uh, three score and ten or maybe four score years. That's 70 or 80 years if you haven't figured it out. But eternity is forever. And we have to gain that eternal perspective. Everyone, this is one reason I enjoy doing funerals, is because it gets people's attention. Now, when you do a wedding, everybody's concerned about all kinds of other things, and they're not really listening to what's going on. But at a funeral, when you have somebody in a casket up front, everybody is confronted with the fact that, that sooner or later they're going to be in a casket up front. And the issue then is going to be what does God say about what is going on in life? And, and what does God say about man's basic problem between man and God? And what does God say about that solution? And the scripture is clear that man can do nothing to resolve the problem between man and God. God had to take the initiative in eternity past. He provided a perfect solution by sending his son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to earth as a man so that he could die on the cross as a substitute for the human race and pay the penalty for their sins. And if people do not believe that, they will not spend eternity in heaven. They will spend eternity under condemnation in the lake of fire, which is not a pleasant object. And that is not taught very much today. People don't like it. It's too unpleasant. Let's go to some church where everything's positive and upbeat. But truth is not always pleasant. Truth is not always upbeat, but truth is truth. And people have to understand the real issues in life. And the ultimate, most important issue in life is understanding the gospel. This is the driving force behind missions. It is not to change other cultures to be American or to be Western European. That mistake has been made and by some, and that mistake was made in the 19th century more than at any other time. But we live in an era today when, because of liberalism and multiculturalism and postmodernism, there is an assault on missions and missionary activity. 
And so the amount, the number of missionaries that are going out from, from this country has been drastically reduced over the years. And yet what I hope to do in this series on missions is to challenge us with the importance and the priority of, of supporting missionaries and the priority of missions for the local church. Now, in the last couple of weeks, I have pointed out that God is a missionary-minded God. He has been involved in a cross-cultural outreach since Genesis 3 when he first uh, gave indication of the gospel to Adam and Eve after the fall. We then went from there to Genesis chapter 12 and saw that in the Abrahamic covenant, God promised to Abraham that through his seed, all nations would be blessed. In the Old Testament, the missions operation was that Gentiles would come to Israel for one reason or another, see the unique culture of Israel, see the temple worship, understand the truth, then take it back to their own nation. That was uh, There was some missionary activity in the sense of Jews going to Gentile nations, but that was limited. Jonah is the most evident example of that. Then we came to the New Testament, and we saw that when just before Jesus ascended to heaven, he gave the disciples a mission statement, and that was to make disciples or to make students of all nations. And they were to go out after the Holy Spirit descended upon them on the day of Pentecost, and that's covered in Acts chapter 2. Then last time, we went through the book of Acts to show how the church expanded, first in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then throughout the Roman Empire. Acts 1.8 says the uttermost part of the earth, and we looked at the various missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. But the expansion of the church did not end with Acts, and Acts doesn't tell us the whole story about the expansion of the church in the first century. It doesn't deal with many or most of the of the apostles. It focuses primarily on Paul and Peter. Peter at the beginning, and then by uh, chapter 10 or 11, the focus shifts to Paul exclusively, and Paul's taking the gospel to the Gentiles in Europe in the remainder of that uh, in that account. But much more was going on. Apostles went to many other areas. Some We don't have hardcore data on every apostle. We have simply a legend. We have tradition. In many cases, there's uh, a lot of uh, evidence to substantiate some of these claims. In other cases, there's just not a whole lot of evidence at all. And all we can say is that uh, this is the... This was the tradition, this was the uh, testimony of the early church, at least into the first and second century. So we went through the apostolic uh, expansion as much as we know. We know from Scripture that John, the Apostle John, was in Asia Minor. Peter went to Babylon and the Parthian Empire. We also know that he went to Bithynia, other areas in Asia Minor. Uh, Thomas and Bartholomew, according to tradition, went to uh, Parthian India, and there's a a strong testimony among some groups that were, remained isolated in India down through the centuries that traced their lineage back to uh, the witness of Thomas. We know that John Mark went to Egypt. The Ethiopian eunuch, after his salvation, continued on home to Ethiopia and took the gospel there. 
We also know that uh, from the testimony in Acts that there were early Jewish Christians at, at, in Jerusalem and Pentecost from Cyrene, that these uh, Jewish Christians from Cyrene also took the gospel to Antioch. So the implication is that those who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, when they heard the gospel and responded from Peter's message, went back to all those different regions uh, wh- where they originated, to Mesopotamia, to, to Media, to Parthia, to Asia Minor, to North Africa, to Rome. And it was through them that churches were established in all of those areas. And I I'm convinced from my study, even though we have very little to go by, and in many cases there was just no written record, at least it didn't survive if there was a written record, but I'm convinced that the gospel made it through most of the known world within a hundred years of Christ's ascension. Now, as I said, you can't, I can't prove that. If I got back to the wall, I couldn't prove that, but there's such an evidence of the way certain people responded and what they did when they went back home and from evidence that we know we know there were many other people from other areas that came to jerusalem so there's a logical inference that they took the gospel back to babylon back to parthia and then there would be would be people there from points further east and further north and they would take the gospel back and it wasn't long before the gospel made its way around the world But by the end of the first century, we get outside of the Scripture, and we start getting into the realm of church history, and this is about where we ended last time. I talked about the expansion of the early church in Asia Minor with Gregory Thaumaturgus, the expansion of the gospel and establishment of churches in Syria. Syria was the location in the second century of the strongest churches in the world, in Edessa, in Antioch. Uh, these were strong local uh, assemblies, and it wasn't until the 4th and 5th century that they began to deteriorate, and eventually they were overrun uh, by the Islamic hordes by the uh, 7th and 8th century. We looked at North Africa and saw there was a development of strong local churches in North Africa as far away as Carthage uh, and Cyrene and Alexandria, and that as the as Christianity established itself in the Roman Empire, that missionaries went out to uh, north to Europe and also west into Gaul and into Spain. There is tradition, but no hard evidence. There is tradition that Paul, um, after his first imprisonment, was released from prison, and he did take the gospel as far as Spain, and there's even some tradition that he took it to Britain, but there's, once again I say there's no hard evidence of that. Now by the time we get down to the 4th century, the church is spreading out. There are churches established in Britain. There are churches established uh, in the southern part of Gaul. There's churches established in Spain. And one of the first missionaries, so to speak, in the sense that, that, that I'm defining it as a cross-cultural missionary, was a man by the name of Ulfilis. And he took the gospel to the Goths. Now, before I get into this, I'm going to move fairly quickly, and there's a lot of names that most of you are not familiar with, names that are difficult to pronounce. And if you're interested, I'm going to run these notes off and put them out on our church website so that those who are interested can uh, can pull them down and get the whole outline with all of the details. Anyway, Ulfilas was born down in Cappadocia in Asia Minor. He was captured by the Goths who lived north of the 
uh, Danube River up into the area today of Hungary uh, and on up into southern Germany. And after he escaped from them, he went back to Constantinople, received some training, uh, was a believer, and then went back north of the Danube River, and he took the gospel to the Goths, translated the most of the Old Testament into their language. To do so, he had to come up with an alphabet for them and a, a written script. So he had to develop the Gothic language, give them a written language, and he translated all of the Old Testament except for First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and all of the New Testament. This was known as the Silver Bible, and many uh, Goths came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Now, there's one little problem here, and you run into these problems all through this period of history. We like to have things all nice and neat, and everybody had the gospel straight, and everybody had their theology right, but that's not true. In fact, the more I read of early church history, the more confused they were. If you read the New Testament, there's such clarity. But as soon as you get past the New Testament into the writings of the folks that are called the Apostolic Fathers, uh, the early church, Clement of uh, Clement of Rome, uh, the Didache, Barnabas, the Epistle to Barnabas, which is not really the Barnabas of the New Testament. But you read those, you realize how fuzzy they became. And it's a progress through church history where you see people study the Word and gradually grow in their understanding and clarification. But many times in the early church, all you have is a very naive understanding of the Scriptures. They would just repeat what the Bible said. They believe, for example, we studied this when our study of the understanding of the Trinity, they, especially through the second century, they would talk about the Father being God and the Holy Spirit being God, and Jesus being God, but nobody was asking the the questions, well, that sounds like three gods to me. And so they weren't articulating the Trinity and understanding, well, how can we believe in three persons and one God? They didn't have the verbiage that developed over time. So a lot of times we don't know how clear things were, but we do know that the that the Word of God is alive and powerful and that the gospel has its impact, and the Lord is not going to allow his word to return vain. And so as men like Ulphilus went out, translated the scriptures into the languages of the people, there were hundreds and perhaps thousands who were saved, and they established churches throughout this area. Now, unfortunately, many of them had a weak view of the person of Christ in this early stage. They were what's called Arians. That's like Jehovah's Witnesses today, in that they did not believe in the eternality of Jesus Christ. And eventually, by the 5th century, that problem was resolved, but it was a, was a problem. Many of these converts among the uh, pagan tribes in Europe among the Goths and the Visigoths were uh, Arians to begin with before they finally got their view of Jesus Christ straightened out. So Ophelis is an example of an early missionary. Then I want to go into look at, well, I'm going to skip past this. Let's um, give an outline here. We've looked at the apostolic period, missions in Acts. We've looked at the early church. And now I want to look at the medieval church. There will be two more categories, the Reformation and post-Reformation church and the rise of modern mission. So we're going to try to cover these last three points this morning, the missions in the medieval period, 
missions in the Reformation and post-Reformation church and the rise of modern missions. Now, I know most of you haven't spent a whole lot of time studying medieval history, so I'm going to try to break this down a little bit for you and at least give you a basic flow chart here, time chart. Uh, the, the blue line there roughly represents the period from 400 A.D. to 650 A.D. From 450 A.D. to 650 A.D., a period of 250 years. And during this time, uh, you have a tremendous impact of missions that come out of Ireland. Maybe you saw the book at one time called uh, uh, How the Irish Saved Civilization. Well, that's what this that author focused on was the impact of Patrick and his descendants, the impact of Patrick and his descendants on all of Western Europe. In fact, there are two periods in church history when missionaries from Britain and Ireland changed the world. The first is during this period in the 5th, 6th, and 7th century, and the next time is during the 18th and 19th and on into the 20th century. It seems that the basic thrust of gospel uh, presentation and the expansion of the church to unreached people has taken place through uh, the Irish and the Brits. So I want to look at four individuals as we go through this, this period of the medieval church. Is focusing, first of all, on on uh, missions in relationship to Britain. We'll look at Patrick, who lived from 390 to 461 A.D., Columba, who was one of his students, from 520, who lived from 521 to 597. Actually, he was a couple of generations later, but a, pr- a product of the churches and monasteries that Patrick established. And then uh, Aidan, who was a product of Columba's work, and Columbanus. These four were responsible for most of the missionary activity during the Middle Ages. Patrick, for whom we usually celebrate St. Patrick's Day, was born in a Christian home in the south of England, and he was the son of a deacon named Calpurnius. When he was 16 years of age, he was captured by Irish pirates and sold to an Irish chieftain by the name of Milku. He spent six years as a slave. When he was 22 years of age, he escaped and went to Gaul. While he was there, he entered into a monastery, and he was trained under Martin of Tours. Now, the monasteries were the local seminaries. That's where the education took place. So they would go into a a monastery, and that's where they would learn uh, learn the scriptures, learn the languages, and after being trained under Martin of Tours, who we'll look at uh, again in a few minutes, uh, he returned to the Irish. He went back to Ireland, where he encountered a tremendous amount of hostility and opposition, because Ireland is under the paganism of, of Druid worship, which sort of like modern environmentalism, you know, they were worshiping the earth and the trees and the plants and everything else uh, because of their animistic background. And so he had quite a challenge before him. His strategy was to approach the chieftains of the various villages, first of all. And once he had uh, converted them, once he had communicated the gospel to them, then he would use the influence of the leaders to reach the people. This was a typical strategy 
the misuse of the strategy was when a chieftain would become a Christian, would trust Christ as Savior, and then command the whole village to trust Christ as Savior, and they would march them all down to the river and get them all baptized. And uh, so it was sort of a nominal conversion. But that did not happen much under Patrick. By the time Patrick died, he had established over 200 churches in Ireland and had over 100,000 converts. These churches he established, uh, along with the churches, he established monasteries which were to be centers of learning. During this time, uh, much of Europe goes into what was called the Dark Ages, which is really a pejorative term. It wasn't that dark. But there, there seems to be, there weren't very many schools. You don't have the rise of the universities yet. And the seat of learning and the passing on of, of manuscripts, copying the Bible, all of that was taking place in the monasteries. In Patrick's ministry, he emphasized spiritual growth through the teaching of the Word, and that had a tremendous impact on the whole culture in Ireland at that time. One of the products of the monastery movement in uh, in Ireland was a man named Columba, who was born some 60 years after Patrick died. Columba's dates are 521 to 597. He was born into an, an Irish uh, family of, arist- uh, uh, of aristocracy. He was educated in the monastic schools. He, he personally founded 37 monasteries in Ireland, and then in 563, as I have noted down here on the chart, he founded a monastery on an island called Iona off the Scottish coast. And it is from that monastery that the world is and Europe is changed. You know, we live in a world today where everybody makes a big issue out of postmodernism and multiculturalism, and the villain of everything is Europe, the Western European male specifically. And European culture is denigrated, and the study of the classics is denigrated, and the study of Western uh, civilization is denigrated. But it's really an attack on Christianity. Because what made Western European history different was the consequences of Patrick's mission to Ireland. Because aside from the influence of Christianity in Europe, Europe wouldn't be any different today from the rest of the world in terms of their uh, pagan, uh, earth-worshipping, fertility cult religions. I mean, you had it in all the Teutonic tribes. You had it with the Angles and the Saxons. That was the nature of the religious systems up in Scandinavia. It was the impact of Christianity that completely overhauled the pagan tribes and the barbarian tribes in Europe. And it was through the influence of these men, and they came out of Iona. Uh, Columba uh, went to uh, Iona, established the ministry there. He had 12 men who went with him. This was sort of a standard procedure. That I guess they were imitating Jesus and the 12 disciples. The uh, missionary would go out and take uh, uh, 11 or 12 associates with him in order to establish uh, another monastery. And they established this monastery in Iona, which is located on this map up in this upper uh, left-hand coast on the western coast of Scotland. It's a very small, bleak, cold island. And yet that monastery was the light of Europe for the next 300 uh, years. 
at this monastery, they spent a tremendous amount of time copying manuscripts, copying ancient Greek manuscripts, and writing uh, biblical commentaries. It was during the operation of that monastery that they developed a a written Gaelic language, specifically under Columba's influence. He developed the alphabet and the writing system for the Gaelic language. And then missionaries from Iona went to the Picts in Scotland and then down to the, uh, down to the southern part of, of England. One of his, uh, those who came up under him was a man by the name of Aidan, whose, uh, Died in 651. His dates are roughly about six. We don't know when he was born. Somewhere around uh, 600. And Aden founded another monastery on the northeastern coast of of uh, Britain at Lindisfarne. And if you've ever been to a uh, museum and seen the wonderful, beautifully illustrated Lindisfarne Gospels where they would draw uh, pictures of gospel stories and illustrate around the uh, capital letters. Uh, that's very famous for that. It's now housed in the uh, British Museum in London. But from Lindisfarne, they sent missionaries out to the south of Britain, down into the uh, southern areas. Also, missionaries from Lindisfarne went into Europe. Columbanus went out from there. Uh, many others as well that we'll mention in a few minutes went out to uh, not only uh, what is now Germany, but the Lowlands, Netherlands, uh, Belgium, but also to Scandinavia. So as you can see from the map, Patrick goes from the south of England to Ireland. Uh, one of his products, eventually, Columba, goes, goes to Iona. From there, you have missionaries who go to Scotland and then down into the, the south of Britain. Missionaries from them go to Scandinavia. Missionaries from Scandinavia will then go south into northern Europe. Uh, other missionaries from Lindisfarne go down into Switzerland and into the southern part of Germany. So it transforms all of Europe because of the missionary missionary activity. Here's another map that's a little sm- smaller. You can just look at the colored area. The green represents Celtic Christianity. There were some various differences between the Celtic Christianity and what was becoming Roman Catholic Christianity, but it's not really Roman yet. It doesn't take on the full tenor of what we now know as Roman Catholic theology until about the 10th or 11th century. The green represents Celtic Christianity. The pink on the map represents uh, Roman Catholic or, or represents um, those that were being converted to Roman Catholic uh Christianity, and then the yellow is where the Roman Christianity was well established. But you can see from this map how it is expanding. The green down here in the area of the Netherlands and Belgium is, represents Columbanus, as well as the green down here roughly in the area of, of, uh, of Bavaria. Columbanus is the fourth in our list of Irish missionaries. He came out from uh, Iona and took the gospel to Switzerland and to the north of Italy. He took 11 monks with him, so they spread out 
throughout all of Europe as a result of their ministry. Along with this, there were many other, dozens of other Irish monks who went north to the Shetland Islands, the Hebrides, the Orkneys. They took the gospel to Iceland. They went south into England. They took the gospel to Scandinavia and into the north of Europe in what is now Denmark and northern Germany. They also took the gospel to Hungary and back to to Italy. So as a result of the influence of that one monastery in Iona, the gospel goes throughout all of Europe and establishes what becomes uh, Western European culture. Now, that doesn't mean everything in European culture is Christian or biblical, but it transforms it from its barbaric pagan base into something that is radically different from a culture that you will find anywhere else in the world. Aside from the outreach to uh, from, from the Irish, there was also a tremendous uh, missionary thrust into the area of, of Gaul and among the uh, the tribe of the Franks. For They were a Germanic tribe, but that's where we get our etymological root for the name of France. The first missionary to go there was Martin of Tours. This is a painting of Martin of Tours by El Greco. Martin of Tours lived between 316 and 396 A.D., so he lived in the 4th century. He was born in the area of modern Hungary, and when he was 18 years old, he was saved while he was serving as a soldier in the Roman army. So when we look at an example like that, we wonder how many other soldiers also were saved and then just took the gospel with them, but we don't have any record of what they did. He left the army, he went into a monastery where he was trained in the ministry, and he went to, uh, in, in the year 360, he established the first monastery in Gaul, and in 372 he was uh, appointed as the Bishop of Tours in France. Uh, another missionary in France was Gregory of Tours, who worked among the Franks. He wrote their history. And when Clovis, who was one of the first Merovingians, uh, he was the king of the Franks, married Clotilda, the princess of Burgundy. Clotilda was a Christian, and so Clovis decided, well, he would be a, a Christian as well. And he converted to Orthodox Christianity, and that laid the basis for uh, France becoming a uh, coming under the influence of Christianity. Except once again we have the negative example here with Clovis when he became a when he became a Christian in 496, along with 3,000 of his warriors, he made the whole army get baptized and made all the nation get baptized. So it's really a nominal form of Christianity, but it begins to have its impact. And then we see tremendous impact of missions in Germany. Now the man who took the gospel to Germany was named Boniface, and his his birth name was Winfred, and he was trained in Lindisfarne. He was Anglo-Saxon. He went to Germany. He also went to the lowlands in the area around uh, what was modern Netherlands and Belgium. And this man had a phenomenal courage. He would go into an area, and he would confront the false gods, whatever the pagan system was. And one example of this is he went to the area, a town called Geismar in in Germany, where there was a huge ancient oak tree dedicated to the god Thor. So he pulled out his axe and chopped the tree down. And then he milled the tree and he built a chapel. 
And through his influence, thousands and thousands of uh, Germans uh, were, were saved and heard the gospel. He then, at the end of his career, went back to the area of the Netherlands, working among a tribe called the Frisians, and there was such hostility to his actions that he and his followers were ambushed by a group of pagans, and they were all killed. Another missionary in the area of the lowlands, in the area of Belgium, was a man by the name of Willebrord, who was another English missionary from Lindisfarne. Even another English missionary was Anskar, who took the gospel to the Scandinavians. Now, that's really an interesting story when you get into the Scandinavians, because once again, whenever a king would get saved, he would make all his people get baptized. That was sort of the standard modus operandi. But the first... uh Scandinavian to become a Christian was Harold Bluetooth. He was the king of Denmark and was baptized around 955. But most of the people didn't want to follow him, so when he died, a reaction set in with his son. And it wasn't until a his grandson, Canute, became the king of Denmark that they became primarily a Christian, uh, well, not a Christian nation, but they most of the people became a Christian or they became officially Christian. In Norway, there was Harold Fairhair who united most of Norway, and he never became a Christian, but his son, Hakon the Good, I just love these names, Hakon the Good was reared in the English court, and he became a believer down there, so he tried to influence his people. He brought missionaries with him to to uh, Norway, but was not very effective. It was not until his grandson, Olaf Tryggvason, who was captured by the Vikings and sold as a slave. Uh, eventually, he was rescued by an uncle, but he decided to be a Viking for a while, and he raided England and Europe, and on one of his raids... Uh, they, cap- they captured uh, someone who told him the gospel, and he became a believer. Eventually, in 955 A.D., he returned to Norway, was elected king, and at his coronation, he made everybody submit to baptism when they swore allegiance to him. See, this is the beginning of the identity of church and state, where baptism becomes a sign of your allegiance to the king, and that has all kinds of uh, terrible consequences once we get to the Reformation period. As a result of the influence of Christianity among uh, those in Norway and Sweden and Denmark, Leif Erikson, who was not a believer, or excuse me, Leif Erikson was a believer, took priests along with him as um, as missionaries. Leif Erikson was uh, led to the Lord by Olaf Tryggvason, and Leif Erikson and all of his travels took missionaries and priests with him to Iceland and to Greenland as well as to North America in order to spread the gospel. So you didn't know the Vikings really had a missionary purpose, but they did. Now, in the east, you have the other expansions. So here's a map just to review what we talked about. Patrick goes to Ireland. Then Columba establishes the monastery at Iona. Uh, then Aden establishes Lindisfarne, and from there, missionaries go out all over Europe. Uh, Christianity is established in Russia in the 9th and 10th century uh, in, in Kiev. In the, in the east, the patriarch of Constantinople, Photius, sent a mission among the Kievan Rus. That's the, they, they were kind of a product of Vikings and uh, native uh, Slavic people. 
and during the reign of King Aga, but there was very little success. Now, here are the Vikings. There's a statue in Kiev of the, celebrating the arrival of the Vikings and the Kievan Rus in that area. And here is another statue to Queen Alga. She was the first to have Christianity in that area, now known as Ukraine. And it, But there wasn't a lot of success, and it wasn't until about a um, hundred years later that her grandson, Vladimir, uh, d- decided that he needed to he would make his people a Christian, a Christian people. They, uh, he, he investigated Judaism, Islam, and Christianity in trying to decide which would be best for his people. He decided they would be best off as Christians. So he uh, chose that, gathered everybody together, had a mass conversion, marched them all down the main street, what is now the main street of Kiev, and had them all baptized in the Dnieper River. The main street of Kiev is called Krushatik, and the root of that word means to be baptized. So it is forever commemorated. That baptism is forever commemorated in the main street of of Kiev. Now, one of the things that goes along with all of this expansion of the gospel is the translation of the Word of God into the vernacular languages. It's not until you get this solidification of the Roman church in the 8th, 9th, 10th century that they start preventing people from having the Word of God in their language and they begin to solidify uh, the Vulgate. But in the in the First thousand years of the spread of Christianity, you have the translation of the Bible into Irish, I mean into Gaelic, into English, into various Germanic dialects, into Gothic, into Old Slavic, and it is the Word of God as it spreads among these people. We see many hundreds and thousands of people uh, come to salvation. That takes us up through the medieval period. Then we come to the Reformation. What happens during to missions during the Reformation period? Well, there's not much of an emphasis on, on missions there because there's such a battle going on between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics. In fact, during the Reformation period, during the 1500s, the real issue is getting the gospel to other Europeans and getting so that they understand the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that a person doesn't need anything else other than faith in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. See, what had happened in Roman Catholicism is they lost the doctrine of grace by the late Middle Ages so that people could be saved. People could be saved by sacrament. They were saved incrementally through the sacraments. And so man does something, he participates in his salvation. But the salvation from the early church, from the testimony of the Scriptures, and recovered in the Reformation was that man can do nothing to save himself. He can never manufacture enough righteousness to meet the absolute standard of God. Therefore, God must give man righteousness. That's called imputation of righteousness. And righteousness comes not by works, but by faith alone in Christ alone. By putting your faith in Jesus Christ exclusively, God then imputes to man the perfect righteousness of Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that 
He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. And this was what Luther recovered in the Reformation, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, that you don't need anything else. You have to trust exclusively and only in Jesus Christ's death on the cross for salvation. If you add anything to it, you destroy it. And that's the warning in Scripture is that that becomes another gospel. The gospel of Scripture is a man is not justified by the works of the law, but is justified by faith in Christ, Galatians 2.16. So the Reformation recovers that doctrine, but very little takes place. Another damaging consequence that occurs in the extremes of Reformed theology is a fatalism and determinism that creeps in, and the idea that if God is going to save the heathen, then they'll save them, they'll be saved if they're elect. If not, well, they won't be saved, but God's going to do it without us. There was some, some attempt to do some missionary work. Lutheran missionaries went out to South America and some other areas. A few Dutch Reformed pastors went out along the trade routes with the various trading companies, but it was very limited. In fact, there was almost a negative attitude uh, a negative attitude towards uh, missions. What really gave missionary outreach a boost was a group known as the Moravians who came out of uh, the Danish Halle mission uh, in the 17th century. Now, before we get into that, just a little background, historical background, Remember, in the 15th and 16th century, you're experiencing all the world expansion. You've got Columbus discovering America. You've got all the explorers going forth. You've got colonists going to, to South America, to Mexico, to, to North America. And there are chaplains and priests going with all of these groups in the British trading companies setting up and the Dutch East India companies. They're taking chaplains with them and they're taking the gospel around the world. It's, uh, not as great as it is later on. In fact, uh, there was a strong missionary emphasis in the in the various uh, uh, explorations of Cortez and De Soto and many of the others. Always took priests with them to take the gospel with them wherever wherever they were going. Now, granted. Uh, it was a Roman Catholic distortion of the gospel in many cases, but in many cases it wasn't. We just don't know, uh, have enough record of everything that was, was taking place. But in the 17th century, there was a, a group in the area of uh, Denmark that established a university at the University of Halle. Now, the man who established... Uh, the Danish Halle mission was named August, August Frankie, and he was a follower of a man named Philip Spainer, who was considered the father of the piety movement. Now, the piety movement isn't some kind of higher life movement, but there were a return at that time, a focus on a personal knowledge of the gospel, that a person is saved not because he's, uh, not because he's associated with the right church, not because he's been baptized into the right group, but that each individual must make a decision in relationship to the gospel. And this was, this 
minor reform was needed because by after a hundred years or so after the Reformation, um, the churches had become too solidified in their theology and they still held on to infant baptism and that if you were baptized as an infant, you were automatically saved and made a member of the church. And it de-emphasized the importance of individual decisions. So the piety movement was a movement that emphasized the importance of a personal decision uh, to trust Jesus Christ as Savior. Well, one of his students was a man named August Frankie, and Frankie established this group at the University of Halle, and by the middle or by the early 1800s, a group known as Moravians had moved up there from the uh, southern part of Germany and Czechoslovakia down in that area under the leadership of a man named Nicholas Ludwig Graf von Zinzendorf. And Zinzendorf was a wealthy nobleman. He had been educated at Holly under, under Frankie, and he had become the leader of this group of pietists down in Moravia. Well, he brought all of them up north to, to establish a community around the University of Holly. And they were missionary minded. In fact, they were the, the, these Moravian missionaries were some of the ones who gave the gospel to uh, Charles Wesley on his way back from America. He got the gospel from Moravian missionaries, and that led to his salvation. Uh, Williston Walker, a well-known church historian, comments that no other Protestant body has been so awake to the duty of missions and so impacted missions as the Moravians. Uh, they sent missionaries to the West Indies in 1732, to Greenland, to Georgia, to New York, to South Africa, Egypt, and Tibet. And that lays the basis and the foundation for modern missions. They, furthermore, among the English, there was a, because of the influence of the Moravians, there was an evangelistic uh, desire established throughout the 1700s, and there were many different uh, societies established for the promotion of evangelism. In 1709, there was the establishment of the Scottish Society for Propagating Christian Knowledge, and one of their missionaries was a, a man by the name of David Brainerd. He was an American, and David Brainerd is sort of our first homegrown missionary to the Indians. David Brainerd grew up uh, not too far from here on a farm in the Connecticut River Valley south of Hartford, and as he uh, as he matured, he was influenced by another missionary by the name of John Elliot. John Elliot came from England and was called the first apostle to the Indians, came over here in 1631, was a teacher at the Roxbury Church outside of Massachusetts, and began to reach the Algonquin Indians in Massachusetts. He learned their, their dialect. He had to reduce their language to an alphabet and to a writing system, and he began to translate the Bible into uh, their dialect. He translated the New Testament by, in 1661 and the Old Testament by 1663. And by 1671, he had gathered more than a 1,000 Indians into 14 praying towns. That's what they called them. These were villages for the uh, Christian Indians. So there was a tremendous emphasis uh, with the colonization to, to take the gospel to the Indians. And here's a chart 
showing the different missionaries going to the various tribes. And I thought this was interesting since it's right around, so much of this is right around our area. Uh, the, the, the Reverend Fitch, and on the left-hand column you have the Indian tribe, the middle column, the uh, area where they were located, and then the missionaries on the right-hand column. Uh, a Reverend Fitch took the gospel to the Pequots in the late 1600s. Reverend Pearson took the gospel to the Mohegans. Uh, Roger Williams took the gospel to the Narragansetts in Rhode Island. The Mayhew family settled on Martha's Vineyard, and through two or three generations, they took the gospel to the Indians on Martha's Vineyard. They first arrived there in 1643. By 1650, they had over a 100 converts. The founding of the founder of the family was Thomas Mayhew, and his grandson, John Mayhew, down to the fourth generation, uh, worked among the Indians, uh, translated the Gospels and the New Testament into their language, and were responsible for the conversion of hundreds of, of Indians. Uh, you have uh, in Massachusetts, John Elliott took the Gospel to the Massachusetts tribe. Uh, Rich Bourne took the Gospel to the Pawtuckets and to the Algonquins, and John Sargent took the gospel to the uh, Housatonics. So you have a lot of missionary activity throughout uh, New England, New York, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. And here's a map showing the various missionaries and uh, their location. Uh, Another well-known missionary was Eliezer Wheelock, who founded a missionary school for... uh, Indians and settlers, and it was called Moore's Indian Charity School. Now, it's interesting because in today's paper, how's this for timeliness? In today's, what is this, Norwich Bulletin? Can something good come out of the Norwich Bulletin? Right up the road, we have a town, I guess it's a town, a village called Ockham, right? How many of you all know where, where who... Where, we all know where Ockham is. I bet you didn't know it was named for Samson Ockham. He was born in 1723 in a wigwam at the, uh, among the Mohegans. He um, didn't begin his formal studies until he was 19. Now, this is fascinating. I had not discovered this, and I've got to insert all this into my notes. Where he went to school was Moore's Charity School in Lebanon. Now, they don't say Lebanon, Connecticut, but I'm wondering if it began in Lebanon, Connecticut. And from those beginnings, and because of his influence, and as a student of Eliezer Wheelock, he decided to go into the ministry. And he then went to New London to take charge of a school down in New London, and he studied Hebrew with the Reverend Eliphalet, I can't even pronounce these names, Eliphalet Adams. As he grew older, and this was, he was in his, apparently in his 20s, he had problems with his eyesight, and he had to give up a lot of his, um, a lot of his study. But amongst, in 1749, he worked among the Montauk Indians and held religious meetings and teachings, so he became an indigenous, uh, missionary. In 1756, he was ordained in the Presbyterian Church. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. I keep driving this home and telling people this. I want you to see how far we've come. Here is a an, a, an American Indian, a, a Mohegan, 
who comes to Jesus Christ as his Savior, goes through training. He's going to be ordained as a Presbyterian. Listen to what he had to do. In his ordination examination, he had to display creditable knowledge of Hebrew, Latin, and Greek as well as the Bible. And he was expected to take up a mission to the Cherokee supported by the Presbyterian denomination. But unfortunately, a war broke out among the colonists and the Indians at that time. And so he never completed that task. But anyway, that, there's a lengthy article about him in the, uh, in today's, uh, Norwich Bulletin. How's that for timeliness? But I have said that for years. We're so watered down now. We, we take, have such a low standard. We've lost the high standard that the church used to have that Ministers were required to demonstrate before they could be ordained that they had competency in Greek, Hebrew, knowledge of the Bible, theology. And we have to get back to that standard. That's what made Christianity great in this nation. That's what made this nation great was because you had knowledgeable ministers who weren't these uh, flim-flam men that you get on television most of the time. They were well trained in the in the gospel. That takes us through the towards the end of the eighteenth century, and that is when you really have the foundation of modern missions. It comes out of the eighteenth century, and several weeks ago when I began this study, I pointed out that towards the end of the seventeen hundreds in England there was a time of tremendous moral decay, and there were a few leaders who stepped into the gap and made it their mission to make what they called manners, which is in our terminology morality, popular. Now, they weren't going to do it through legislation. They were going to do it through the power of their own personal example. And one of those men was a man named William Wilberforce, and he was responsible. He had help from many others, but he was the member of parliament who pushed for about 20 years and finally had a bill passed that abolished the slave trade. And he had help from others, such as Granville Sharp, who was a noted uh, Greek scholar. But it was Wilberforce who made that one part of his life's mission. He also made it his life's mission to uh, make morality popular. And by that, he meant uh, uh, an emphasis on personal integrity. And it was through Wilberforce and a number of others that he was associated with that were later called the Clapham sect or the Clapham group. And they were a group of, of uh, English aristocrats, several members of parliament, who made it their task to promote legislation. They eventually uh, reversed the restriction of the uh, trading groups out of e- England so that they would have to take, uh, the, the, like the East India Company, they would have to take a missionary with them when they went to India. Uh, the East India Company didn't want any missionaries going into India because all they would do is criticize the Hindu religion and stir up trouble. And as a result of the legislation from Wilberforce and others in that generation, it laid the foundation for what became the 19th century uh, Victorian emphasis on missions because of the fact that they uh, changed the nature of culture, not legislatively. They did have important legislation, but the legislation wasn't to change morals. It was to allow for the spread of, of Christianity. And one of the most important men that came out of that period was a man named William Carey. William Carey is sometimes referred to as the father of modern missions, but he's really the father of denominational uh, missions. His, he lived from 1761 to 1834. 
He was what was called a particular Baptist. Now, that doesn't mean he was particular. That meant he was a Calvinist. And uh, and among Calvinists at that time, missionary activity and evangelism was pretty much frowned on, and that was evidenced by his own pastor, John Ryland. John Ryland uh, replied to Kerry when Kerry first said that God was calling him to India to be a missionary. Uh, John Ryland said, young man, if God intends to save the heathen, he will do so without any help from you or me. And that was a standard attitude, was this deterministic fatalism that came out of, came out of hyper-Calvinism. But nevertheless, Kerry did garner enough financial support that he went to India and converted thousands and thousands of Indians to uh, Jesus Christ, and they were saved. Another missionary that went out at that time that was an American was a man by the name of Adoniram Judson. And there was a meeting that took place among several students at William College in northwestern Massachusetts. They would meet weekly for prayer, and they would pray for missions. And one day they were on their way to class, and a thunderstorm broke out. It's amazing. If you know anything about church history, how many people have uh, significant things happen in thunderstorms? Luther made a commitment to God during a thunderstorm that if that he would only save him. Lightning struck about five feet from him. Uh, if God would only save him, he would go into the monastery. So here's another case of, of lightning bolt uh, changes. And they had a thunderstorm, and so they took shelter in a haystack. And this is known as a famous haystack prayer meeting. And they got in that haystack, and as usual, every week they would just pray for missions. But they sensed that God was calling them all to the mission field. So after they got out of Williams College, they all went to Andover Seminary, which is outside of Boston. Uh, there they were joined by a man named Adoniram Judson. And Judson, along with seven other missionaries, after they finished seminary, notice the emphasis on training. After they finished seminary, they were going to go to India as missionaries. They were going to join up with William Carey. When they got to India, there was a lot of opposition from the East India Company, and they decided that uh, Judson and his wife decided they would go to, to Burma. And so they, they went to Burma and for several years they had to, uh, they had to hide out and they had to dodge the East India Company because they kept trying to deport them. But eventually they were, they were established there. They worked for seven years before they saw a single convert. They think what that was like. The only other English speaking person is your spouse. And they had to learn the language. They had to develop a written language, alphabet, written language, translate the scriptures. And during his life, he translated most of the, most of the, the scriptures. In 1824, war broke out between uh, uh, Britain and uh, Burma. And the, the Burmese didn't quite understand the difference between an American and a Brit, so they arrested him and threw him in prison for a while and almost cost him his life. But he had a fantastic ministry that established uh, Christianity and established churches in, in Burma. And then the final example I want to mention is Hudson Taylor, because it is in this period in the mid-19th century that you have the establishment of what became known as faith missions, and it is the influence of this one man, Hudson Taylor. I highly recommend a book called Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret to read about Hudson Taylor and the importance of prayer in his ministry. Hudson Taylor was raised in a Christian home, but he wasn't saved until he was about 17 years of age. Initially, he wanted to be a medical missionary, but he didn't want to go through all of the training. 
He finally was accepted with the Chinese Evangelization Society, and they sent him to China, but they didn't really fund him very well. He never had any money, and he was very critical of what was going on among the missionaries. At that time, all the missionaries would go to a couple of different cities in China. They lived in a European compound. They dressed like Europeans. They never learned the language, and he saw that the other missionaries were lazy. And this is one of the biggest problems with missionaries. Trust me. They're, 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 some are very lazy. I'm not going to say they're all very lazy. We have some very hardworking missionaries. In fact, Jim Myers was telling me when I was over there last year that a missionary in Kiev actually wrote home in his, in his missionary letter that one of the most difficult challenges for a missionary was to find something to do. See, that's a problem with a lot of denominational missionaries is they're supported by a denomination. There's no real accountability to a local congregation. People don't ever go over there to see what they're doing, or if they do, all of a sudden they find a lot of work to do during that week. But laziness is a real problem with some missionaries, and that's what what Hudson Taylor found. So he decided that he would learn the language. He began to go out and travel up and down the rivers and go to the villages. He dressed as the natives dressed. He even wore a fake pigtail. And and as a result of that, he had uh, hundreds of thousands of converts. And through them, he developed indigenous leaders and established indigenous congregations. And eventually, he established his own mission called the China Inland Mission. And by 1914, after his death, the China Inland Mission was the largest mission organization in the world. And this established the precedent for most modern missionary organizations to operate on a faith basis, or what we would call a grace basis, where each individual missionary would raise their own financial support through local churches, and through individuals and local churches, they would be financially supported on the mission field. It was during that time that dozens of other missionary organizations like a Central American Mission, Sudan Interior Mission, Africa Interior Mission, many other missionary groups were established that are still going very strong uh, today. But this is the basis, this, this uh, faith mission movement that, that was uh, initially developed and started by Hudson Taylor is a basis for how we operate missions here at Preston City Bible Church. We support about six different missionaries, including we've just put on uh, Chafer Seminary on our missionary list. And if you don't know how it operates, I'm going to tell you this morning how it operates. We do not support our missionaries out of our general budget. Many churches that I've been to, they'll have a subcategory of the budget, missionary support. The deacons will decide or the church congregation will vote on how much support we're going to give to each individual missionary. But we don't do it that way here. We, the missions budget is not part of our general budget. As part of our grace giving, we have our offering boxes attached to the back door. And if you want to give money above and beyond or separate from your support for the local church, then you make that, that donation. You still make it out to Preston City Bible Church, but you designate it for missions. And then at the end of each quarter, whatever has come in for missions during that quarter is divided equally among those six missionaries. And we do a very decent job of supporting uh, missions and missionaries here, and I want to encourage the congregation on that. Uh, for a church this size, we do a great job, and but we need we can always do better, and we need to have a tremendous 
a heart for missions and a desire to support missions and missionaries. And this means not simply financial support, but most important of which is prayer support. And that means you need to know what's going on with these missionaries. And you need to read the prayer letters. And I have one that we'll be putting in the bulletin next week. They just came in from Ralph LaRosa, and they're building a, or they want to finish the building that they're working on in the Philippines. It's a great, uh, they need to have two more classrooms, and they're having a tremendous impact there as they're planting churches. And, of course, Jim Myers, and I think uh, today's the third day Jim is speaking to a campus crusade group up in the Carpathian Mountains. I uh, talked with him uh, by email briefly on Wednesday. He was leaving to go up there. He said, you know what these three-day trips are like? It starts off with a 12-hour train trip overnight. Then I have to wait in the train station for about three hours for the bus and then take a three-hour bus trip up into the mountains. And then uh, I'll be up there for three days teaching, and then I have to uh, travel back the same way. So isn't that? See, it's amazing what our missionaries go through. And we need to support them. They need to be treated as God's special people. They do not need to ever have to worry or should never have to worry about financial needs uh, because of so much that they have given up in order to carry out their task. But this is the purpose of missions, and this is a history of missions, and it is important. It's not some secondary thing. It's not something that we should just... Uh, relegate to, well, they're, they're, that's just what they do, and we're going to go on about our lives. We need to be uh, intimately involved with uh, our missionaries and know what they're doing, and we need to be teaching uh, the kids in prep school about our missionaries and what's involved in being a missionary and how important it is to be a missionary. There is no other higher calling in this life than to be a pastor or a missionary. And it, as I've pointed out through our study of the scriptures, it demands our best, not some secondary category of, of, uh, which is so often characterized as a church where we just give people our, give missionaries secondhand clothes and cast off and, oh, you're going to be a missionary, so you go to this second, get this second class education. We should send our very best, our most educated overseas, uh, in order to effectively communicate the gospel to those who are lost. This was the attitude that Gaius had and for which he is praised in Third John, and it should be the attitude of Preston City Bible Church. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to, to study the expansion of Christianity today and how it has been so many men and women throughout the centuries who have dedicated their lives to leave home, to leave family, to leave friends, and to take the gospel to, uh, in many cases, a people who are hostile to the gospel. Uh, the sacrifice, the personal sacrifice, uh, the loss of health, in many cases martyrdom that accompanied uh, taking the gospel, having to live in a completely foreign situation where you never hear a word in your own native language. You eat unfamiliar food, have to dress in unfamiliar clothes, and yet it is to secure people an eternal salvation. Father, we thank you that we have had this opportunity to study your word today. We pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do to be sure that you will have an eternity in heaven is to put your faith alone in Christ alone. You don't need to make a bargain with God, reform your life, go through any kind of religious ritual. 
You simply believe that Jesus Christ's death on the cross is all that is necessary to pay the penalty for your sin and to provide you with eternal salvation. Father, we pray that we might not forget what we have studied today, but it might challenge us to a world vision for the expansion of Christianity and the uh, declaration of the gospel to many hundreds of thousands who have never heard the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.